Hey everybody, this is Tim Green with Rattle Magazine, and this is Rattlecast number 35. Um, it is March 31st, the last day of March 2020. Thanks so much for joining us uh, for the Rattlecast. This is the most casual poetry podcast reading and interview around, I think. Um, we're here with Wendy Barker today, one of my favorite poets. Um, I just love her last two books, so we'll be sharing those with you very soon. Um, but as everybody trickles in, we always like to do a warm-up poem. And, and traditionally, this is the 35th episode. I've played a poem that um, people are um, going to hear. But I can just read a poem, I figure. I can read a poem myself. I can do that. So um, I am going to actually read. These are, uh, for the warm-up poem, we're going to do two poems. There's a really short one and a really long one. It's a father-son pair. And they're two of my favorite poems in Rattle that don't have a, um audio file attached. So um, here they go. This is, uh, this is The Preakness by John Colasacco. And then um, we're going to do a um, poem by his son, which is going to be a lot of fun. Um, but first of all, I should say John Colasacco's books include uh, Antigolf from Civil Coping Mechanisms, uh, The Information Crusher, and two teenagers, most recently, from Lost Horse Press. Oh, also The Wagoners from Transfer Books. So he's got a bunch of books, John Colasacco. And this is a poem that we published back in... Um, published back in... Read number 29, summer 2008. And it's one of my favorite poems. There's just such energy to this poem. So here it is. This is The Preakness by John Colasacco. The Preakness. Jesus wasn't going to make it. Jim kept, Jim kept coughing and crying on the floor next to the blue crib, the longest hair on the backs of the girls. None of it came back. A moth came back, and the noise, it wasn't possible. The garden wouldn't turn around and show its face. It wouldn't open. Yes, the black and white story lady music teacher tells about a phantom. I listened to it. I found out you could die with your eyes open. I went with E and D upstairs, and we played die with your eyes open in the room with the sandpiper door like doctors flying, flying around, one having more sadness than the other, one listening close, and I needed to blink, but I was dead, so I tried to squint, and I saw a knuckle in a black tree branch. I saw my uncle saying, it's diseased. I saw my marker drawing of a snake, a brontosaurus in a t-shirt, and a glowing in the dark. One had her wrist over my eyes, saying, yes, this happens, how it can happen. And whether it actually happens, we answered in part. We were starting to improvise, and the bathing suits had lives of their own, with water in them underwater. There was the week my uncle took both pairs of scissors away, and I didn't tell, and didn't tell me where they were. I found out about the insides of my eye, and what was in there. I didn't want to do it, but I wanted to do it, and I said so, but I shouldn't have said so, and I tried to draw the knuckle, but it came out nothing. I was mad. The basement was on a slant. We put gasoline in a coffee can. We kept playing, but I blinked. It was fine. I explained again the point of the game. I forced them. I had a little sale, some pretzels and a deck of cards. It's not called a brontosaurus anymore, and then some daisies died in my hand when I picked them for this picture, this blue one with Jim in a wagon. The fruit trees would sting you outside, the woods would sting you. I fell into a log full of hornets and died. I fell into a plastic swimming pool and died. I had a cough, I forced it, it was Tourette's, I wasn't born. My uncle was following me like gasoline in a coffee can. Rows of snakes moved in the garden and I caught one and killed it, and my shoe sunk halfway down like a thought. The garden stung you, the basement was on a slant, I had my own hatchet. 
My uncle had a hatchet. The moon came out. They tore their kneelers out of St. Edward's and chopped them up for money. We chopped branches off the branches. We chopped stakes for the vines to climb and ate all winter. Some lighters died. The for sale sign was gone. My uncle said, Who you like in the Preakness? When we were Italian and the girls knew what I, what I knew, my eyes were going. I blinked at Jim and he came back. We took out two pairs of scissors. I found out about scissors and water. My uncle swung a bucket of water over his head and said, centrifugal force. So that was John Colasacco. I just love that poem for the energy of it and the urgency. Um, some childhood memories coming through uh, in just such a powerful way. It's one of my favorite poems we've ever published, I think. So I thought I would share that. And then his son, Frank Colasacco, age three, it was in the uh, Young Poets Anthology about six years after we published that poem. This is Frank Colasacco's poem, Bob the Bear, which um, he said, Dad, I want to write a poem too. And so um, um, John Colasacco recorded it and uh, then transcribed it. And this was uh, Frank Colasacco's poem at age three called Bob the Bear. Bob the Bear breaks himself and some balls come out and that lamp comes out and a daddy comes out and a hammer comes out and a nail and Bob the Bear hammered the nail and fixed himself. That was from the Rattle Young Poets Anthology. Um, and uh, Frank Colasacco, age three, says, I like to write and I like to type funny stuff. Um, so that was uh, from the 2004 Rattle Young Poets Anthology. Those are two of my favorite poems by one father and son poetry duo. So I just thought I'd share those to start out as everybody trickles in. Um, let's see. Now, um, the guest today, as I mentioned, is um, one of my fav favorite poets. Uh, Wendy Barker's new book is Gloss. It's her seventh full-length collection of poems from St. Julian Press. Her sixth collection, One Blackbird at a Time, was chosen for the John Chiardi Prize and was published by BKMK Press in 2015. Recipient of an NEA Fellowship, a Rockefeller Residency Fellowship in Bellagio, as well as other awards in poetry, she has been a Fulbright Scholar, or Fulbright Senior Lecturer in Bulgaria. Her work has been translated into Hindi, Chinese, Japanese, Russian, and Bulgarian. She is poet in residence in the Pearl Lewin Endowed Chair at the University of Texas at San Antonio, where she has taught since 1982. And for more information, you can find her at wendybarker.net. So check her out. Check out all her books. Um, her, most, her two most recent books are just great. Um, I have to admit, those are the only two I've read, but they're really, really good. Um, and here she is. Um, Wendy Barker. Hi, Wendy. How are you doing? It's great to see you and to be with you, Tim, in these strange times we're living in. They, oh, my goodness. They are this, strange times. Um, I was actually in San Antonio, um, yeah? where, where you are, uh, in early February. And we planned on it being, we went there specifically because it was going to be our last vacation until the oh. um, craziness. So it was like February 9th, I think we were there. Oh, my gosh. I'm sorry. I missed you. Well, yeah. it, was, it was a family trip. We were just doing it to... Um, oh, sure. Sure. To, to have the kids yeah. fly somewhere while it was still oh, possible. Good. We were thinking yeah, right. like, you know, who knows when the next time we'll be able to fly. <laughs> is. Really, but it's a beautiful right. city. And you've lived there since the 1982 at least, right? It's a good, good place. It's home. Mm -hmm. It is. It really is. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm still at UTSA, which has changed enormously over the years. Oh, <laughs> I'm partially retired, but not mm -hmm. completely. I oh, still yeah. love this. I adore the students. Mm -hmm. Yeah. We have a good time. Yeah. Well, one of your yeah. books, the, the book that I sort of fell in love with your poetry with was, was uh, One Blackbird at a Time, which is about your whole oh, teaching experience. Right. And, you know, right. it's something that I've never 
had the opportunity to do, I guess you could say. Um, but but I could really relate through all those poems um, to oh, what that good. experience must be like. It's a really good book. But but Gloss is your new one. Do you want to read a poem from Gloss to start it out? Sure. Do what now? You said, now, am I supposed to read about 20 minutes, or you want me just to read one poem and then just we go one from po- there? Just one poem for now, and then we'll take questions for the audience, and I want to ask sure. you some things about, about you and your life, too. So, Of course, yeah. But I want to thank you so much for this, and I also want to thank Ron Starbuck, publisher of St. Julian Press, ah. who did such a beautiful job with Gloss, mm-hmm. and all the friends who've helped with these poems. And I... I want to introduce. Okay, if I do a little introduction. Yeah, about yeah. Explain, poems. explain what the um, book is about. Uh, this this book began in 2012. My two sisters and I were together in Chicago, for the first time we'd ever been just the three of us alone without husbands and kids, and we started talking about our mother, and remembering what we knew about her background. My mother came from England, and married my father in the United States in 1939. My mother came from this incredibly privileged upper middle class, not Downton Abbey type people. The Duchess would have been horrified, trade people they were, but extremely wealthy. Um, Her grandfather had started an import-export firm. And so mom grew up in Hong Kong and all over the place with houses all over, with servants. I'm growing up in Tucson with my parents, you know, moving all the time, with my parents always in debt, my mother doing all the ironing and the laundry and the cleaning and everything, it did not make sense. It just didn't make sense. I only met my English grandparents a few times when they came. I know it was all English, but it was a completely different language in a way. It was a different culture. They were like, what? They're from a different planet. So it just didn't make sense. And gradually I tried to make sense of it. What on earth was going on? So the poems here are trying to trace what's going on with my mother's background, which looks real glossy on, trying to gloss mm-hmm. her background, which looks real glossy on the surface, but. So I'll start by reading the first poem. Um, actually, let me read the epigraphs. Is that okay? Yeah, yeah, go ahead. Let me just read the epigraphs. Um, I'll read just two of them. One of them is by Claudia Rankin from Citizen. Claudia says, you can't put the past behind you. It's buried in you. It's turned your flesh into its own cupboard. I don't very much care what people do, as long as they don't do it in the street and frighten the horses. (laughs) King Edward VII. Okay. And here's the first poem in gloss. What surfaces? Another chip in the white enameled sink, only three years old. How I've tried to keep it pristine, and yet... Stainless steel pots scrape it till the black cast iron breaks through. What's below a surface gloss? Now the flesh on my hands has grown so thin, the layers underneath show through. Rivery veins and knobby metacarpals. Knuckles like pebbles, like rocks. I bordered my rose beds with stones from Blanco Creek. How long did it take to shape those irregular rounds and ovals? Our house, built of blocks mined from the quarry, only five miles up the road, limestone formed in the Paleozoic era. My favorite paperweight? A fossilized clam I found in the backyard, remains from the time the land around us lived under ocean. Something so pot, wizened, 
holding my papers in place. Arriving at the Grand Canyon, we've all peered down at those dozens of rock layers, granite, dolomite, sandstone, shale, basalt, formed two million, maybe two billion years ago. And who would want to mend that great magenta, purple, blood-shaded rip in the Earth's surface? It's what we come for, to gawk at all those layers exposed. Hmm. Yeah, another excellent poem. And that's uh, the first poem from Gloss by Wendy Barker. Um, Wendy, you know, I'm wondering, you know, reading this book, I was wondering how... um, you did you researched it did you interview your family members like where did you come up like because you have these mysteries that you're sort of solving um and and i sort of related it to myself because i have sort of family mysteries too i guess yeah, you could say many of and, us do yeah. yeah i think we all do and and so how did you sort of do the research for a book like this that was so personal did you interview family members did you look back through journals and things like that like what did you do actually i didn't it was more a journey of memory hmm of just sort of tracing the stories that I'd heard from mom and gradually building up to what the, the book, I don't, I don't want to give the ending away, but, <laughs> that it's not as pretty a family as it looks. Mm-hmm. Um, something that mom didn't tell me till late in her life. And um, so it's sort of, it's really, it's really dealing with memory. It's my own um, experiences with my mother, my own sense of trying to understand um yeah yeah mm-hmm. yeah 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 that makes a lot of sense um given given that do you want to read maybe like two more poems uh, before we sure yeah my ear thing just dropped out is that a problem or no, yeah. we're, we're still good we're yeah, good we're good okay. yeah we're good okay. Here, the, um one of the things that characterizes this book is that it poems are in different forms there are long line lineated poems like what surfaces and then it's punctuated by little short syllabic poems that are meditations on a Chinese scroll. Um, and those poems are also included in the chapbook, Shimmer, that was published by Glasslier Press, who did a beautiful job with the chapbook. So I'll read, so I read one of the little um, syllabic poems and then another one. How's that? Yeah, that sounds good. What pages? This is on page three. Okay. Yeah. And then I'll read, um, the next one I'll read is the, um, on the RMS Queen Mary, which is on page seven. Okay. And that's a prose poem. So there's three different forms in the book. Okay, here's the syllabic poem. Okay. Along a river, meditating on this Chinese scroll. Along a river, you will know upstream from downstream. Off these sloped banks, clumped water, hyacinths, mossy strands provide clues. No movement other than scarlet dragonflies flitting the surface, mosquitoes, beyond a source you must find. And here is on the RMS Queen Mary, and actually I'd forgotten um, when the RMS Queen Mary was brought to California, this old ship, um, this liner, that mom had sailed on, um, my, one of my sisters sent me information about it, and that sort of sparked this poem. Mm-hmm. The RMS Queen Mary. Docked since 67 in Long Beach, the same liner mom sailed in 39 from England to marry my father. 
relic of a past the well-heeled now are recreating, cruise being the upscale way for travel, like the tour labeled Alaska's Glorious Inside Passage in Eight Days, or the one advertised as Wonders of the Mekong, Ten Days Down South Asia's Amazing River. But the Queen Mary was not designed for this sort of travel, rather to get you from Southampton to New York in less than a week, or from one life to another. Within a year, Mom had lost most of her Britishisms, but not all. Oh, you Americans, she'd shudder at us daughters, though she carried on with Thanksgiving and the 4th of July. The phrase, carry on, holds more weight than hand luggage. Alone on the Queen Mary, not part of any migration, no soft-bosomed granny, no jocular uncles to keep her afloat. Those glossy first-class cabins were kept spotless, then repainted, reupholstered, refurbished. Not a trace of her. And that was the RMS Queen Mary from um, Gloss by Wendy Barker. That, that was one of the poems that stood out for me because we have a a close connection myself to the Queen Mary. Oh, we, really? um, yeah, we, um, we went to the Queen Mary for our, our wedding anniversary. Oh my goodness. And found on the way driving there, uh, Megan, I don't know if I should say this, I guess I should, she felt like weird, weirdly. So we stopped and got a pregnancy test oh on gosh. the way to go spend oh the night at the gosh. Queen Mary. And oh so she God. was in one of those bathrooms, you know, peeing on the <laughs> stick and it came out positive at the, in the Queen oh Mary. So it's always such a memory. And so reading that poem oh really brings back that. If anybody, you know, hasn't had a chance to stay there, they really should. It's such a, an, a weird place to be because there's so much memory that like echoes around on that ship. And you can just, you know, it's like a hotel now that you can spend the night at. But um, it's a great poem. Um, I should say before going, if anybody has any questions for... Um, Wendy Barker, pass. Um, just ask them in the chat windows. I'm, I'm, I'm monitoring. I'm not really paying attention. I have to be honest to Twitter, because I really don't like Twitter. But I'm looking at Facebook and, um, and the YouTube stream especially. So if you have any questions and you're watching on either of those platforms, um, you know, just write, write your questions in the chat window, and I'll pass them along um, to Wendy. But one of the things that that you mentioned already, and that I noticed, you know, it's it's just obvious in the book, is that you have these different forms. Um, and and how do you decide? you know, what goes into what form? Like, how does, how does, um, how do you operate with form in, in your writing process? Gosh, what a question. That's a hard question. It's just, <laughs> um, um, it's <laughs> experiment and see what works and what doesn't work. Um, it's funny, the prose poems just pretty much came out as prose poems. And with the Chinese scroll, actually, that's a scroll that belongs to my husband, Steve Kelman. And it's in a prominent place in her house. And I just, I would pass it all the time. But those needed to be these just short little syllabic poems. Mm -hmm. And then the long lineated ones are like the poems in One Blackbird at a Time, right? Just mm -hmm. a real talkie. Ultra, ultra, David Kirby, Barbara Hamby, not as good as theirs, but, <laughs> but, about but, that, but very yeah. much, very much influenced by Kirby and Barbara and D David's term ultra talk. So those lineated poems are influenced by that. And they just sort of, I'm not sure, I'm not sure, that's a good, you know, I never really thought about yeah. why, but yeah. I should look back at drafts and see what happened. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I mean, yeah, I think as poets, we all learn to follow our instincts maybe, and, and just yeah. the, the instinct tells you what the poem wants yeah. to be somehow. Like, yeah. I, I feel like poetry is a communication from our deep consciousness. And so, yes. you know, to our... 
articulate like why we make the choices we do. I think that the trick, you know, I read the the, the um, um, Frank Colasacco's poem at age three, which is just a great poem because at age three, there's like no, the con- you know, the subconscious just comes out. And then as adults, we have to trick you know, trick yes. our consciousness to yes. shut the hell up yes. so that exactly. the subconscious can do what yes. it needs to do. Yes. So, right. yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I also um, sort of I end up writing poems in series a lot. Right now I'm writing some poems in very narrow lines. I don't know why that happened, but they just seem to want to be long mm-hmm. column, column poems. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, you want to read a couple more? Sure, yeah. Yeah, I'll read another um, prose poem. Um, some of the poems in Gloss are meditating on pieces of silver that I inherited. I didn't grow up rich, as I said, but later in life, as grandparents left things to my parents, and then later they left things to me, um, there are a lot of silver pieces that became subjects, so several of those find their way into Gloss. And there's some others in different forms that show, show up in the chapbook Shimmer. But here's one called The Silver Terrine. This is the first in a series of poems about the Silver Terrine. So this is The Silver Terrine 1. Mm-hmm. In what page? Page 8. Okay. It keeps slamming open, exposing the tangled roots of garlic I store inside it. How often my father quoted Lear's praise of Cordelia. Her voice was ever soft and low an excellent thing in woman. Better dead than loud. The terrain won't stay shut. Garlic smell throughout the house. And of course, it's prettier when closed. Glossier, sleeker. The polished dome like a perfect loaf of risen bread or a silky breast. Sleek, smooth, easy to run a hand over. No sharp edges. And I'll read another of the little syllabic poems. Um, let's see on page. Um, this is on page 34. Okay. Maybe his boat, maybe his boat is drifting back toward the mouth of the river. Or he's grown tired from the long push and the banks down farther lure him with the fine silt of easy slopes, silky tendrils. Perhaps under the mountain's mist, something hides he fears he will reach. That was maybe his boat from Book Gloss (laughs) by Wendy Barker. Um, Wendy, on... um... Let's see on uh, on the YouTube stress. So, uh, a whole bunch of people are saying I miss your class, and uh, Christina oh, Troy says I miss your oh class. Then Brooke goodness. Edwards says I miss your class. Uh, oh, I miss you Joshua too. Perez says samezies. Blake oh, Lavario also the same. So much. <laughs> <laughs> um, um, what do you think about um, teaching poetry? Do you have any advice for people oh. who, you know, you know, how, how did you go about it? How did you approach teaching poetry? Cause I've heard from a lot of people that you were a great teacher. Oh, that's kind. I love it probably more than anything. I love, I love the students and I love our UTSA students. Um, 
I love teaching. I love we sit in a circle. Luckily, we can keep the never can keep the class as small as I'd like. But even if it's 23 or 24, we sit in a circle. I like to get to know them. I like to know. I mean, one of the things I say at the beginning of every semester is every one of your voices matters. And frankly, right now, I would say that even more than ever, every single one of your, our voices really matters. Our stories need to be out there. And I say stories, even though I'm teaching poetry. Um, but, and everyone's gonna write differently. I use a lot of different people's books mm -hmm. to, to give, give, give students a real range of poets writing today. And we invite people to come in. Um, we had wonderful visitors, Natalia Trevino and Ignacio, um, um, and um, um, Octavio Quintanilla. And um, last fall, we had Rita Dove, which was absolutely fantastic. And in the fall, assuming people can travel, we'll have Joy Harjo be coming in also. So I bring in, the, I, I, like to, I like to have the students be exposed to a variety of voices to encourage them to develop their own voice and their own style. And of course we work on things. We work on, we don't want abstractions, right? <laughs> so, you know, let's describe this room. Well, it's boring. Well, what makes it boring? You know, the walls are beige and the floor is, you know, so we want to go. So I work real, one of the things I work, work, work with is getting vivid imagery and really living with the senses, living with the body, living through the body. Mm -hmm. And yeah. So as you can tell, I really, <laughs> I really love teaching. And it's so great to hear from those people. I miss yeah, you. yeah, there's a whole bunch of people here. Um, oh, my. <laughs> uh, Zachary, just not leave him out, Zachary Sokolowski, oh, too. Oh, my gosh. And I get to Evan. see Zach in the fall again. I'm so glad. Yes. <laughs> um, can you say a little bit about why it is that imagery is so powerful. Like you mentioned the concrete image. You know, a lot of people, I just assume that most people watching and listening to a podcast like this are poets themselves because that's kind of how poetry works. If you right, if right. you read poetry, then you really want to join, you know, the conversation because it's a big conversation. Um, can you explain a little bit just why image is so important? Because it's just the, the where things live, you know? Why, why is that? Because we live in the body. Mm-hmm because we live through the senses. I mean, even good fiction. I'm, I'm rereading Camus' The Plague right now. Mm -hmm. I think, oh I think that's God. probably the number one book <laughs> right now. I think so it's many people so are rereading it. And it's, I'm reading, of course, in translation, mm -hmm. but it's so beautifully written. I mean, again, and the imagery is so vivid. You're just walking those streets with the characters. Um, so it's, you know, it's just that we, you know, if I say, um, gee, it's a beautiful day, well, that's nice. What does that mean? You know, um, the blue bonnets are blooming. You know, the wild mustard is blooming. There are primroses in the front yard. The mesquite is leafing out. Then we can see, right? Mm -hmm. um, but if I just say it's a beautiful day, okay, so what? You know, what does that mean? And in different parts of the country, it's going to be different. So the more we can appeal to the senses, the senses, the more the poem is going to have an impact. Mm -hmm. That's what I think. Yeah. And you, you mentioned fiction several times already. Why write in poetry as opposed to fiction? I mean, this book, really, you could write gloss as a novel or, a you know, an, um, historical it's an fiction or something narrative like that. It is, yeah, and it, so many poems are prose poems. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I love the prose poem form. The book before one blackbird at a time, as you probably know, is nothing between us. 
which is basically, we called it a novel in prose poems. Mm -hmm. It's really a memoir. I was told I had to call it a novel because I might be sued. (laughs) (laughs) But it's it's a collection of prose poems that build as and like a novel about my experiences of teaching in West Reed Black Berkeley in the late 60s and early 70s. And um, my students have heard all about this and some of them have read the book, but it's it's not Mm G-rated at all. But the prose poem, I can't think, I can't think in terms of a long narrative. The idea of following characters and bringing them back in, oh my gosh, I just, I mean, I just, my mind doesn't work that way. I think in small amounts. So it's just, the way I work. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and and why, how did you get into poetry in the first place? Um, what, oh, what drove oh, you into oh, that? Jim. Oh my. I was very lucky in that um, my parents both read poems to me. One of the few things they had in common <laughs> was they both loved literature and they both loved poetry. So from infancy, they were reading out loud to me. And, and I loved that. And then my, later on, my father would read, he'd stand up with his, after his, what, fifth or sixth bourbon or scotch and cigarette in one, the other hand, a drink in one hand. And he'd read from his favorite collection, and he'd read Keats and Robert Frost. And I would literally quiver. I would shiver. I would be so moved. And he would read to me. And then I went off to college, got married, and um, kind of dropped out of school and long, difficult time, and got back. And then around the time in the middle 70s, but my son was born in 75, so I was pregnant, going back to graduate school, kind of finding myself after teaching in Berkeley and with those students. <laughs> I mean, that was a really rough stuff. Literally, the pimps would crawl through the windows to get the girls work in the street kind of thing. It was oh, rough wow. stuff. Wow. Okay. As I've told students, this, <laughs> the students have heard me say this a million times, but I've told, when they ask what to call me, I've told them, you can call me Dr. Barker. You can call me Professor Barker. I'd really rather you call me Wendy, but frankly, as long as you don't call me motherfucking honky bitch, I'm good. <laughs> so, and that just kind of sums up what those years were like. So I got back to graduate school and was pregnant and just started jotting little things down and then got in the PhD program at UC Davis, took my little jottings to Sandra Gilbert at UC Davis, and she said, these are good. You do this, you do that to make them even better, and you get into a poetry workshop. And so it was a poetry workshop that, you know, and so one of my best friends of all time was from those workshops. We're still very close and we still exchange poems. So, yeah. <laughs> so it's a long story. Yeah. yeah. Um, yeah. Since you brought up Bird by Bird, or um, One Blackbird at a Time, is there any yeah. poem you want to read from there or maybe a couple from there? Um, I have sure. it here. Okay. I'll have to Somewhere. go in the other, just a second. I'll, okay. I'll be right back. Oh yeah. Okay. No problem. No problem. I'll be- okay. Yeah, so I'll put it up on screen as Wendy's going to get that. But um, yeah, this is uh, One Blackbird at a Time, which is which my real introduction. We'd published Wendy a couple times um, before I, I got to this book. Um, but, um, you know, it's One Blackbird at a Time. Okay, okay she's back. Got, got the book. Okay. <laughs> okay, good, good. <laughs> okay. <laughs> You want me to read one or two or yeah yeah whatever you, whatever you'd like to read but but just okay. to give some people a taste since it's sure. come up once again I could read the first and the last let's see sure that'd um, be great yeah let me read I'll read a funny one I'll, I'll read the first one and then I'll read the last one okay, okay. they take a few they take it'll take about seven minutes altogether oh, that's that fine oh we have we have sure? all the time in the world okay. oh we do no one's oh, in any rush oh my goodness <laughs> how 
How wonderful to have somebody say we have all the time in the world. <laughs> well, no one's going anywhere, so we know. You know, in a way, you know, in a way, <laughs> you know, one of my Jewish friends is saying it's in a way it's kind of like a long Shabbat. I mean, mm-hmm. kind of having a long break, just yeah, yeah, yeah. It really is. You know, we're yeah. I love having the kids home the whole time, and we're oh, going for daily good. hikes for like an hour and a half oh, every day. Oh, good, and good for it, you. It is kind of. Um, that's I don't know, funny. like a, yeah, that's a great, great comparison, a long Shabbat, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I have to say, I'm really self-isolated, and so I'm, It's this is great to see you, because I'm really getting a bit lonely. Thank goodness Steve <laughs> is with me. <laughs> yeah. Okay, this is from One Blackbird at a Time, and this is the first poem in the book, it's called, I Hate Telling People I Teach English. Like last August, after they'd finished my bone scan, This combed-over mid-60s guy starts chatting about the novel he's written in his head. He only needs someone like me to work it up. He never liked punctuation, parts of speech, all that junk from junior high. And I couldn't get my printout fast enough to take to my GP, who likes to quote from his inspirational speeches to local luncheon clubs. He's determined to collect them in a book, though he'd need a good editor. Do I know any? And meanwhile, I've been waiting 57 minutes for help with recharging my sluggish thyroid. And I haven't met any doctors who like giving free advice about your daughter's milk allergy or your friend's migraines or the thumb you slammed in the stairwell door, splitting it open so badly your students interrupted your lecture on pronoun agreement to note you were dripping blood from your hand. And wow, what happened? But it's mostly at parties I hate admitting I teach English. I've never been quick enough to fudge, the way a Methodist minister friend says he's in support services, so he doesn't get called to lead grace. I guess I could dub myself a communications facilitator. But since I'm in the business of trying to obviate obfuscation, I own up, though I dread what I know is coming. Oh, they say, I hated English. All that grammar... You won't like the way I talk. You'll be correcting me. And suddenly they need another bud or mellow or they've got to check out the meatballs or guacamole over on the table. And I'm left facing blank space. No one who can even think about correcting my dangling participles. Once when the computer guy was at the house, bent over my laptop trying to get us back online, he asked what it was I wrote. And when I told him poetry, said, ah, fluffy stuff. And I wasn't sure whether he was kidding or not. But I figured at least it was better than his saying he hated poetry or that he had a manuscript right outside in his Camry and could I take a look? No hurry. But he knew it would sell. Could I tell him how to get an agent for his novel about his uncle moving to Arizona and running a thriving ostrich farm until the day hot air balloons took off a half a mile away and stampeded the birds? Till all he was left with were feathers and bloody tangled necks on fence posts the dream of making two million from those birds a haunting sentence fragment. But then, I think, I would never have wanted to miss the time a dentist, tapping my molars, asked if I'd like to hear him recite Chaucer's prologue to the Canterbury Tales in Middle English, which he did while I lay back in his chair, open-mouthed, pierced to the root. So in a very different different mood, the last poem in the book. Is that okay? Mm-hmm. Yeah. This is on page 77. 
the last time I taught Robert Frost. The last time I taught Robert Frost, I shuddered when Olivia, who was writing her dissertation on dialectics of the self in Gloria Anzaldúa, announced she found him lovely. Lovely, I cried, professional composure shot, my image of Frost collapsing suddenly as the great stone face on Cannon Mountain, the craggy old man fallen in shards to the ground. True, this was not on par with the vandalizing of his house in Vermont. Homer Noble Farm's wicker chairs, wooden tables, dressers smashed and thrown into the fire to keep the place warm, while 30 kids swilled 150 cans of Bud with a dozen bottles of Jack Daniels and threw up on the floor. After all, Olivia wasn't saying she didn't like the poems, but lovely? A word my mother detested as phony, like someone holding a pinky straight out while drinking tea, the sort of word my grandmother used when vaguely praising a Bartok piece or a play she didn't understand. Like people saying, how interesting, when what they really mean is, spare me the details, or could we change the subject? So when I asked Olivia what she meant by lovely, and she talked about the lush, long vowel sounds, I wondered why I'd felt stabbed, until I remembered my father's lying in the ICU, the fat respirator tube jammed down his throat, the whoosh of forced breath fogging the glassed-in room, and my stroking his forehead while my father, whom I'd never seen cry, began to leak tears down his chiseled face. Finally, not knowing what more to do, I stood by the window staring out at the New Hampshire pines and began reciting one of his favorite poems. I must go down to the seas again, to the lonely sea in the sky. He started to jerk, hold body spasms under the sheets, more tears carving runnels down his cheeks, and I knew he wanted me to recite Stopping by Woods, his most loved poem, and maybe mine too, but I couldn't. I couldn't turn from that window looking out of the trees beyond the parking lot. The words of the one poem I've known by heart for decades buried somewhere below my throat. He died the next day. Maybe that was why I asked the class if we could recite it, if perhaps some of them even had it memorized. And Denise and Lupe and Nathaniel actually said they had. So we chanted it, the other eight of us reading from the Norton's crisp white pages. But when we came to the ending, not a single student needed to look down as we sang the last stanza altogether. I can't explain it. But for once, something dark and deep entered among us in the overly air-conditioned room, as if we were all oneself and yet still alone in the cold and wanting to stay. When we spoke again, we talked until I had to stand up, open the door, and tell them to leave, say it was past time for their dinners and all the lovely, nagging promises waiting for them to keep. That was the first and last poem from One Blackbird at a Time, uh, Wendy's book from maybe four years ago. Um, it's a beautiful book from BKMK Press. Um, Wendy, everybody was saying, as, as you were reading, um, you know, Caitlin Buxom, Buxbaum says, Girl, I feel this poem. We're talking about the first oh. one. And Kim Tedra about the fluffy stuff. 
and um, everybody's just relating so much which is the case because so many poets are are teachers you know so if you're a teacher pick up a copy of this book for sure because you you will relate to everything um i thought those were two great examples of the ultra talk that you mentioned before um which to me is sort of a you know like a a narrative monologue i guess you could say where you really inhabit the voice of somebody i usually imagine somebody I'm on a bar stool. <laughs> when I'm, you know, it, it's David Kirby's voice. I, it's hard to imagine you on a bar stool, kind of. I don't know if you spend much time in bars, but um, but that's what I imagine as I'm reading. And a long time ago. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, so what does the ultra talk talk you know mean to you? What is that that form, and, and why do you like to write in it? I just love the letting the voice roll. I just love that just rolling the rolling voice. I just love that lack of of boundaries of you know just yeah yeah mm-hmm. just that blah, 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 blah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. and of course david kirby is so funny and barbara hamby is so witty also in her own way um but so those are two sort of models i guess i've had for that form but mm-hmm. it just it's um i think it's a sort of lack of boundaries the way the mind just trying to um i mean for good grief you know elliot was doing this kind of thing brilliantly mm-hmm. you know how many years ago um, uh, but with someone like Eliot, there's a sort of jumping around, right? We sort of jump around. There's a lot of fragmentation. But with the Kirby Ultra Talk model, it's more just, you know, as the minder is, I'm talking to you, and oh, let me think of that, and oh, that reminds me, and that kind of mm-hmm. right there, that presence. I think I love the presence. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. Were you? Were you? Um, how did um, you? You. How were you introduced to that ultra talk as a model? Is it something? Um, I know it's that's Kirby's word. Uh, did you write like that before, and then sort no, of, or, no. or did you did you no. study under him, or just read him and enjoy it? How I just did that read, work? read him and enjoyed him, and uh, yeah, we've met several times, and but um, just read him and enjoyed him, and um, sort of set me free. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I think in a way the prose poems I've been writing, especially nothing between us, may have led up to that because even though those are prose poems. Um, they're very much um, just kind of letting the mind go, and yeah, and a lot of conversations in them back and forth. So yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, a few people have asked about form again, um, and let me see if I can find them. So, so David Cook uh, asks, um, even in a prose poem, do you still craft the lines to end on certain words? So, so that's just no, no? you just let it no. go. That's easy. No, it's a paragraph, mm-hmm. right? For me, they're white justified. It's a paragraph. Yeah, yeah. But, but, sound is as important as an an alineated poem. Sounds, um, and one of the things I care very, very much about. Um, whereas, you know, some people say, oh, you know, older people will say if it's just not end rhyme, it's not a poem. Um, and obviously, I don't use end rhyme, but but I care a lot about internal rhyme. You know, the sound echoes, I like to say. Mm-hmm. So even in a prose poem, I care a lot about sound echoes and the rhythm, the rhythm of sentences or fragments. But 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 with a prose poem, the rhythm is accomplished not by the line break, but by the sentence or the sentence fragment. So, yeah. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. There's one thing that comes up occasionally is we publish um, 
prose poems and rattle uh-huh. is that people will say, you know, I want the line breaks to be where I had them. And I'm like, well, it's a different font <laughs> and different kerning. And, and it doesn't work that way. It's, if it's not a prose poem, then that's fine. But I can't make it in my own that's font right. be the right, um, that's, the right that's way to right. go. Because every time right. you change the font, you change the spacing of everything. Yes, so it exactly. You, exactly. Really, you really can't. Um, um, also on the craft uh, note, um, Stephanie Kitty Carpenter over on Facebook asks, when you write very short poems, how do you know it's a complete piece? And I guess that would imply, apply to both long and short poems. Or how do you know a poem is finished? But, but with the short poems especially, um, you, you, oh, you know, it seems like you could go on for sure. So how do you, how do you figure out? Do you feel it when it finishes or how does that work? When it's working, I feel it. But I'm very grateful. I have a number of people. We exchange poems together. Kevin Clark, my old friend from graduate mm. school, is a wonderful poet, um, and he's one of my best readers. Ralph Black, also a wonderful poet. Alice Fryman, wonderful poet. Um, Barbara Crooker, more recently. I'm leaving people out, I'm sure. Um, but I mentioned so many people in Gloss. Hannah Stein, for years ago, not so much now, but and my husband, Steve Kelman. So we exchange poems back and forth and I'll send it and then people have suggestions and um, I'm very bad at letting things sit. I'll usually send something to Alice when I know it's not quite there yet. (laughs) And then she'll have a suggestion and I'll fiddle some more. Mm -hmm. And then sometimes I have poems. I have poems that have maybe drafts that fill like three folders, this many inches in the file drawer. You know, I'll go, there are poems I spent six months on, not all the time, but draft after draft after draft after draft. And I've learned, and one of the things I try to emphasize with students is that if something comes to you, an image or a line comes to you, jot it down before it's gone. And if it's two o'clock in the morning, wake up and jot it down. (laughs) But jot it down and then something else will come. And one of the things, um, this is maybe getting away from your question, one of the things more recently I've been doing, and this this fit with gloss and even more with new poems I've written that haven't been collected yet, but um, I do a lot of research anymore, last few years. So I'll do a lot of research, jot down notes from things I've read, and then something from the life will intersect with that research and build. How do I know it's done? When all my friends say it's done, <laughs> and and I feel it, you know, mm-hmm. and I feel it, and then... And then I'll send it out, and then maybe you'll take it. (laughs) (laughs) And if not, then maybe I'll go back to the drawing board again. You know, (laughs) so yeah. So it sounds like you're you're a reviser kind of poet. Do you you enjoy the revision process? Oh yes, that's what it is. And that's another thing I tell students. It is. It is all about revising. It is all about Mm -hmm. revising. Yes. Yeah. So that's always so interesting because there are totally two camps. There's the whole, um, you know, so. first thought, best thought, and then there's first thought, worst thought, which, <laughs> and, um, and, and people are so, you know, into their mode of how they do it, which I think is just a way of, you know, it's a technique that we learn to access that subconscious thing. But uh, some people do it in the revision, I think, and some people do it in the, um, different. and yeah. sometimes the first thought is the first thought and is the first line, mm-hmm. or it's yeah, going to yeah. be, the, sometimes the first thought is real important mm-hmm. and needs to be there. But then there are other thoughts and then things maybe need to come out or maybe 
that you know maybe there's a word that's pretty boring yeah, yeah. or do you yeah. do you find yourself like moving whole sections around and changing the order and, and like that much of revision sometimes sometimes mm-hmm. not always yeah 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 um, to go to another question, because it's still about craft, um, David Cook asks this again, and uh, David Cook again, okay. but it's something I've okay. been wondering about. Um, do you try to inhabit other voices like AI does, or I does, and Vice? Oh, that's a wonderful book. It is, that's yeah. a wonderful book. And um, um, in Nothing Between Us, the poems about those years teaching in West Berkeley, um, I really write a lot about other kinds of voices. Um I mean, not about, but I try to use their other voices who were quoted in the poems. Um, and um, certainly in Blackbird, you know, I'm quoting students and I'm quoting other people. So there's a lot of using other voices throughout those poems. Um, in Gloss, there are a couple of poems where I use my mother's voice. Um, so does that answer? Yeah, 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 I think it does. Because yeah, you know, your your poems do have a very real sense, like like we mentioned before, of being like a dramatic monologue. And, uh, and one of the things I was thinking okay. about actually reading it is the way that I back when I wrote, I don't really write much anymore. But if oh, I would get stuck sorry. in a poem, I would um you know read it in like you know in my head in like a southern accent or like in some kind of different accent, and that oh, sometimes that lets you access like a different person somehow and push yeah. through. So I was yeah. wondering actually as I was reading if that's kind of something you do. Do you imagine that the actual speaker is somebody different from you? I don't. No, I'm, that probably is my limitation, but I don't. <laughs> Well, um, we we have some more really good questions too, but but let's do we you know we've been talking about let's do a couple more poems from Gloss maybe, and then we'll do a couple more questions. Okay. Okay. Um, now I have a question for you. Would these be sure. the last poems I'd read? Um, I think we do two, and then we'll do some questions, then finish off with one. And How that's a, that? Well, let's see. Um, let's see, because I want to. Well, here's one. Here's one that's in Mom's voice. Okay. So yeah, I'll do two, good. and then we'll finish up with the last poem in gloss. How's sounds that? Sounds good. That sounds perfect. Is that good? Yeah. <laughs> okay. Here's one that I don't usually read. Um, it's titled Elegant, quote, she said. Elegant, she said. My new friend was chuckling, saying she cracked up when I let fly the F word while speaking to an audience of 500 because, she said, I look so elegant, a class act, a knockout. I changed the subject. She doesn't get it. In our family, it had always been the clumsy one. By sixth grade, inhabiting a close-to-six-foot, rib-protruding, hunched-over frame, buck teeth and braces, wispy blonde hair, pale bluish eyes, called scarecrow, string bean, and then in high school, boobless bean. And with a regal-shouldered, chocolate-eyed, russet-haired mother who modeled for the fashion pages of the Tucson Daily Citizen. My little sister, a brunette, the pretty one, began Flair Modeling School at 14. Those 1950s Clairol ads asked, is it true blondes have more fun? Not this blonde. The time I brought my drawing of a girl to show daddy and his only comment was a clipped, she's not very pretty. Over my parents' old fashions banter about women, pert little nose, a shame about her piano legs, good-hearted but that horrendous pitted skin. Now the flesh of my arms droops like crumpled silk. Yet my husband swears he loves my bones. Once, when mom was around my age, 
She spoke of her granny Lillian Walker Graves, who sparkled on the vaudeville stage. Men tripped on their shoestrings at the sight of her, Mom said. And my own mother, she went on, had that same quality, just as I did. And as your little sister does, she added, looking at the ceiling. But then, the year before Mom died in the retirement home, as I walked beside her electric cart while she steered past wheelchairs and walkers, a resident stopped us. Why, Pam, she gushed, this daughter of yours? No one would question you're her mother. She looks just like you, moves with your elegance, your grace. Mom jerked upright and sputtered. She does? And pressed her foot on the accelerator, whizzing off. I had to run to catch up with her. Maybe I should... (laughs) <laughs> Maybe I shouldn't have read that poem. And that's my youngest sister, who I adore, and who's a brilliant animal behaviorist. <laughs> and I adore her. She may be listening, so I apologize, Trisha, for reading that poem. <laughs> <laughs> well, it was a really good one. And just a, a sort of, um, I don't know, like just such an engaging story. And But the kind yeah. of story that we all have, too. It's sort of, I see why you're a good teacher, because it makes me oh. want to write poems, too. You know? Oh, Oh, good. <laughs> oh, good, good, good. <laughs> Okay, here's one of the ones toward the end of the book. Okay. Okay, this is called Latent Image. Latent Image. Before she died, Mom pulled that photo out of the album, tore it to shreds. The one that showed her at seven, naked, posed like a nymph, a statue on the lawn. Grandfather's insisting she strip in front of the servants and sit like that, her legs folded to one side her head bent in the opposite direction, his little nymph. Stilled in that photo, caught by silver particles, the standard black and white photographic process introduced in 1871. A photo's final image, metallic silver embedded in a gelatin coating. Stills, we say, stopped action, a single frame of a film Yet I never knew Mom stilled until she died, her trim body beneath a sheet, always moving, vacuuming every crumb of dust to be sucked into the guts of the Electrolux, its bag emptied into the garbage and gone. After dinner, Ed Sullivan on TV, her hands working a needle or scissors, her feet joggling, toes wriggling. Daytime, her sewing machine's roar, her fingers zipping the fabric toward the needle, her foot pressing the pedal full speed, and driving always over the limit, as if to say, get me out of here. Silver atoms, freed when silver salts meet the light, form an image that's stable. Once the film's developed, it's bathed in a chemical fixer. Clean water clears the fixer from the print, and the latent image becomes permanent. The story she told me long after I'd moved away, how, when at 13, she asked her mother what she should do about the black hair spiraling in her armpits. Granny said, Father can help you with that. And he did, in the shower, every week, shaving her. That was Latent Image from uh, Wendy Barker's new book, Gloss. Um, before we continue, I like, I like to have these as, be as interactive as possible. So I want to get to everybody's questions. But I should just say, um, if you're enjoying this, we do this every Tuesday night. Please do click the like button. Um, no matter where you're watching, if it's 
what Facebook, if it's uh, Twitter, if it's YouTube, make sure you like it, make sure you subscribe, because the way these computers work, the more you click on stuff, the more the algorithms that control the world know that these are things that are worth sharing, and um, they'll show it to more people, and that's just how the way, that's the the reality of social media. So please do click the like button and subscribe. Tell your friends about this if you enjoy it. We meet a new poet right in your living room, from their living room to yours every uh, Tuesday night, so... So please do that if you could do me a favor. Um, there's two more. There's a lot of craft questions. Um, oh, dear. Let me, let me make sure I get everybody because <laughs> people are just really interested in craft um, and, and with good reason. Um, so Jackie McBennis has two questions that are sort of about the process of creating books. First, she says, she asked about your line breaks. Um, do you break with breath or where the word on the next line will be emphasized? Uh, what's your technique for line breaks, especially with those long line poems? How do you decide? Um, especially with the line break poems, they're all in, as you can tell, um, different forms. For instance, the one, let's see, the one I just read, um, well, the one I'm about to read, let's just do that. The one I'm about to read has, is really written in tercets or triplets. The first line is long. Next line is a little shorter. And the third line is shorter than that. So it's like a, um, long line, slightly lo- less long line, and then shorter line. So that there's so a lot of the f- forms that I sem- seem to tend to these days, recently, has more to do with the visual impact. Mm-hmm. And I care very much. For instance, in these poems, I want the lines to be the same length on the page. So there, so that's the first thing, mm-hmm. and that is really tricky. But then I don't like ending a line on a the or an ah. <laughs> I want the lines to end on a strong word if possible, although at times a line can end with a preposition to carry you, carry you forward to the next line mm-hmm. that will begin with a strong noun or something. Yeah. So it's a combination of things. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of the poems I've been writing recently until the poems I've been writing this last couple of months um, – a lot of the poems, I had set this kind of rule for myself that I would not end a line with a period, that I would just keep keep moving so that so that a period could appear in the middle of a line but not at the end of a line, so that you kept moving. So it depends on the kind of poem. Mm-hmm. Um, the poems I'm writing right now, very new, I'm not sure they're working, um, haven't been published, are shorter lines and often do end with a period. Um, just sort of more column poems. Mm-hmm. So it depends. It depends a lot. But shape is very important to me. The visual yeah. appearance of the poem on the page is very important to me. Yeah, I always feel like what, what, what really happens is that you're sort of, I always compare being a poet and, and, and sharing a poem with a reader as a dance. You know, there's sort of a, the lead yes, and there's good. the person who's following the dance. That's and good. so to have a poem that has a shape that, that shows that you do it with intention it's really, I think, what readers are looking for, for the sense of confidence that I can trust this poet to take me where I'm going to go. It's like the first, you know, it's like the, the first impression you get. Yeah. And if the first impression is sort of confidence, then um, you're ready to let the poet lead you on this dance right. you're about to go on, on this, I yeah. love the dance. Yeah. I love that. Yes. Yeah. Um, and so, so um, Jackie McManus had another question also okay. about sort of craft. Okay. She says, when ordering your poems in a book, how do you decide the oh. placement? Oh, the, oh, Jackie. <laughs> <laughs> It takes forever. Um, there's a, I, 
almost a narrative arc. Um, if it's not a narrative arc, it's a, an emotional arc. So, for instance, in Blackbird, I start with a funny poem and end with the Robert Frost poem about Daddy dying, um, but yet also with the power of poetry to bring this group together. That you know, The students, most of them actually know the ending of Stopping by Woods and Miles to Go Before I Sleep. Mm-hmm. So, so it starts with a sort of funny somebody not getting about poetry, ah, fluffy stuff, which actually this computer guy really did say to me. Um, Oh, fluffy, you know. Anyway, um, but then it ends with this closure and the death of Daddy, but also this bringing of the students, all of us together in the room. Um, so, so there's a kind of building, and it takes. It's an enormously long process, and again, I have friends who help me. Um, Kevin Clark, probably more than anybody, but Alice Fryman is wonderful. My husband Steve is wonderful. So many people. I'm not naming. I'm not. I should. Many more I can name. Um, but with the book, not quite as many as with the individual poems. But just trying to um, order them in such a way that the progression just feels right. And sometimes a poem needs to come out. And sometimes a poem I don't want to come out. The Faulkner said, "Kill your darlings," and so often we have to kill our darlings. So yeah, yeah, it's tough. It's not an easy thing to do. Yeah, we're crazy. <laughs> but we love it. We do it because we love it, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, Michelle Grajeda says, uh, Wendy inspires oh, through her Michelle. own honesty. And um, oh, and I, I completely agree. I always feel like what we're looking for in a poem is just an actual honest moment with somebody. You know, there, there's such a um, a lack of that in our daily lives, I guess. You know, like this between small talk and in the media and, and projecting and trying to have a, you know, a, a reason for the conversation, a m- ulterior motives. Just the honesty is what really comes through and what we connect with through poems. And I, I think that's a great comment because I think that's exactly what I love about your poems. So um, I just want to pass yeah. that comment along. That um, makes me very, very happy. <laughs> do you want to um, close out with one last poem? Sure. Why don't I end with the last poem in gloss? Is that beyond Here's, a certain age or is that? Uh, yes, beyond sure. a okay. certain age, I look for Paris and Paris on page 68. Okay. Beyond a certain age, I look for Paris and Paris. I know about the syndrome de Paris, triggered when a greenhorn's rosy lensed image turns muddy, but I'm no wistful Francophile neophyte, so why am I feeling like my British uncle, who'd sniped as I left for my first trip to Paris? Why bother with that filth? When my friends heard I was heading again for the City of Light, they said, Paris, oh yes, in a breathy, pre-orgasmic voice, as if they were picturing my lounging outside a café on the boulemiche over a café au lait or a glass of chilled Sauvignon Blanc, as prelude to a blissful night with my husband in a cramped but oh-so-charming chambre double forgetting that I can't do caffeine or alcohol, and that I've also forgotten, in mid-July, the sidewalks, the metro, and the galleries would be chock-a-block with chattering Brits, Italians, Yanks, Germans, and Brazilians, along with, since it's the week of the Tour de France, clusters of steel-bodied cyclists. So we're jostled by T-shirts emblazoned with slogans like Endurance Conspiracy and Terminator, The outing we planned to Giverny is canceled. Too much traffic. When for months I've been yearning to peer down into the waters that spawned Monet's Nymphaeus. 
those rounded walls and lingerie, depths that lead to more depths, dissolving boundaries. Where is the Paris of my mother's rebellious cousin who painted with Max Ernst? Or the Paris of my grand student, grad student and her new husband, noses nuzzling before Latour Eiffel on their Facebook post? Or the Paris of my 20s, when I first floated into Manet's water lilies, when the sand glimmered like a thousand liquid candles as I sauntered across Pont-Marie at midnight. On L'Avenue du Clichy, on Rue de Rivoli, I see only dog poop, crumpled plastic bags, and unfiltered butts. A two-hour wait to enter Notre Dame, the facade blocked by tawdry bleachers. Pebbles from the Tuileries have collected in my sandals, though I keep jiggling my feet to shake them out. May I have actually become my British uncle. Samuel Johnson said, if you're tired of London, you're tired of life. I'll bet he'd put Paris in the same category. After all, didn't he say, French faces shine with a thousand graces? I can't begin to keep up with my mountain goat, Marathon, her husband, who covered seven arrondissements on foot at a greyhound's trot. Yet now, on the day before leaving, I'm fueled by a breakfast of hard-boiled eggs. And he says, how about Sacré-Cœur? It's only a ten-minute walk. We'll take our time. So we do. And the hill with its rounded, gleaming white cathedral is washed with breezes. Inside Les Jardins Renoir, we are alone in the courtyard, red poppies brimming at green edges of stones, a silence glistening through sudden empty space. And here it is, not Giverny, but a round pond. And, oh, yes, pink and white water lilies, their shimmering pads like clean hands open to sky, stems trailing into the barely visible muck, and tiny speckled fish burbling to the surface, then spiraling back down to the silt, murky depths, the dirt that underlies us all. That was another poem from Gloss by Wendy Barker, her newest book, Beyond a Certain Age, I Look for Paris in Paris. Um, so those are two glimpses into Gloss, uh, which is her newest book, and One Blackbird at a Time, which we shared, got to hear two poems from, too. So I highly recommend picking up both books. Um, Wendy Barker, thanks so much for joining us. It's been as much of a pleasure as I thought it would be. Um, I'm glad you could do it. Thanks so much. Tim, thank you so much. Thank you. And thank you for all you do for poetry. Oh, it's my pleasure. It's the funnest. It, I have the most fun. I mean, teaching <laughs> is probably really fun, too. But, um, but but editing a poetry journal is a pretty fun job as well. Uh, I think we have pretty good lives, the two of us. So, um, I think you're right. Thanks, yeah, we should count our blessings. Yeah, thank you, Wendy. Have a great okay. night, and um, I'll talk to you soon. Okay. Okay. Bye-bye. So that was Wendy Barker um, with her two books, One Blackbird at a Time, from um, BK mk press i'll throw this on the screen really quick just so you can see uh bk mk press you can find that at umck no umkc.edu slash bkmk it's the university of missouri kansas that's their their press that's one black but at a time and then gloss just came out that's her most recent book which came out just this winter from saint julian press and you can find that I don't see a website for St. Julian Press, but I'm sure there is one. But you can all find everything at wendybarker.net. So um, check out her website. And, um, and yeah, thanks so much for, uh, for joining with that. I hope you enjoyed it. I really did, too. Now, we have a, um, 
open mic, which is now for the prompt. We have a prompt poem every week. Um, Rattle's assistant editor and my wife, Megan Green, uh, she does a prompt. And, um, oops, hang on a second. Let's find it. Um, yeah, so, so the open mic now, because these are just the most fun, I think. The open mic is going to be prompt poems every week. Um, if you don't know, we have an open mic show for Poets Respond every Sunday at 2 p.m. Uh, Eastern, 11 a.m. Pacific. So that'll be like an open mic, anything about current events or anything that you can sort of find an angle of how it relates to a current event. You can call up and uh, join in the open mic every Sunday, um, whether or not you submit it to our Poets Respond series. Uh, we always want any poems that relate to current events. It's just a lot of fun to share news and, and talk about news that way. Now, um, so last week's prompt was the first word must start with the letter Z. The last word must end with the letter Z. So that was Megan's prompt for last week. As always, Megan writes a poem based on the prompt. Uh, usually she records it, but we were really running. This is like last minute stuff this time. She wrote, she wrote this poem while I was cooking dinner for the kids um, and then sent it to me and then I threw it up and then I was, um, I didn't throw up dinner. I threw up the poem and, um, <laughs> and, um, and then I got a phone call that I had to take cause it was important. And, uh, so I'm a little discombobulated, but here we go. This is uh, Megan's poem setting in the zombies, which I'll have to read cause we didn't have a chance for her to read it. Uh, Megan's poem from Z to Z. This is uh, sending in the zombies zombie apocalypse. This is not the talking head says. And there's a disappointment in his voice. A monster is a simple thing to kill. A mother is a tricky thing to save. It's simple to walk into a raving crowd with a machete slung cowboy style over your shoulder. It's tricky to walk into a hospital bloated with moans and weigh the value of lives like grocery store fruit. Zombies are heavy metal, a raucous thrill, a bloody goodbye while the credits roll. Coronavirus is a balcony, acapella, a, lilt, a lilting, a fading jazz. That's a poem that starts with Z and ends with Z by Megan. Oh, I can't. So I can't play Matthews. It's not, it's not something that plays in my browser. And I didn't download it yet. So I'm going to read Matthew's poem. This is Matthew King. This is Matthew King's poem from Z to Z. This is Zeno Dances. And uh, Matthew King lives near Wallasta Lake in Ontario, Canada. Find his nature photography at birdsandbeesandblooms.com. Um, and, and Matthew included a poem last week, and so this is his uh, poem this week. So, Zeno dances. Zeno contemplates music playing without him, completes the waltz. Sort of a sonnet, so, or sort of a haiku-ish poem, so I'll read it again. Zeno contemplates music playing without him, completes the waltz. Now, next up, I think I can play this one. This is Cindy Botha from New Zealand. I don't have... Um, I couldn't find a bio for her, but um, I know she lives in New Zealand, and I know she's watching the show now, so um, let me pull this up, and hopefully, I don't know, Cindy didn't include audio, so I'll read this for Cindy. Okay. This is Cindy Botha's poem, Holding a Bumblebee from Z to Z. Zebra bee, but nothing like a zebra. Rather, the garden sunflowers distilled to this humble scrap of yellow and black, which pauses in my palm, deliberates, sticky as a sponge cake, pollen smeary, now simmering into mutter and hum, nudging my fingers, you're a scramble bee, somersaulting tumble bee, all dither and fuss. 
but you lift off suddenly like a, into a dance. Leave on my hand the lemony spice of you, the tiny brittle zigzag of brisk feet. Seduced by the seething jazz of flowers, rosemary and lavender, their greasy blue, you, small hive hand, set the evening abuzz. And that was Cynthia Botha from New Zealand with Holding a Bumblebee. Thanks so much for sharing that, Cynthia. Or Cindy, it's um, always a pleasure. That was a really fun poem. I hadn't actually read it, and um, reading that for the first time, it was a really good one. Thanks for sharing that, Cindy. Um, now, Megan's prompt for next week is going to be... A happy love poem. It's harder than it sounds. Try to avoid cliches. So write a happy love poem. And um, I'd say that is harder than it sounds. That's a really hard thing to do. We did a love poems issue, uh, rattle number 43. And um, we had a ton of submissions, but it was hard to to um, come up with something interesting, I think, because love poems, especially happy love poems that are genuine and not sarcastic, are, um, um, you know, kind of hard to not be cliche. So um, So write a happy love poem for next week, and we'll share it here. Um, there's a whole bunch of ways you can just email us to openmic at rattle.com or you can call up at this time at the end of the show anytime you want or send me a chat message over Skype at Rattle Poetry and I'll call you up so you can share your poem if you write one for next week. Uh, but once again, the prompt for next week is a happy love poem, which is harder than it sounds. Try to avoid cliches. So that's all for the Rattlecast for tonight. Thanks as always for joining me. I hope you had a good time. I really did. I love Wendy Barker. And um, I hope you do too. Um, and uh, next week on the uh, Rattlecast, we have Catherine Barrett Sweat and her new book, Voice Massage, which won the uh, Donald Justice Award, or Donald Justice Poetry Prize, I think is how you'd say it. Um, she's a formalist poet, and it's a great book. I, we, she came out to uh, one of our readings in California maybe three or four years ago, and she was one of those poets that you just... Um, and you met and you realize, like, why, you wonder why she didn't have a lot of full-length books uh, ready to go. And, and now here it is, winning the Donald Justice, or Donald Justice Poetry Prize. So that'll be next week's guest, Catherine Barrett-Sweat. Really looking forward to meeting her again. Um, as I mentioned earlier, we have a um, open mic show every Sunday at 2 p.m. Eastern. If you submit to Poetry Respond, you can find that at rattle.com slash respond. Um, if you write any poems about current events... You submit it there. Uh, we, we publish them. I'm trying to publish as many as I can because there's so many being written right now given the the um, very unusual crisis that we're going through. This is a um, something that we are living through right now that uh, no one really has in, you know, 100 years almost. So um, there are a lot of poems about the coronavirus. Uh, but, but in a normal week, we will have many poems about many topics, and this week included. If there's some other topic that's not corona-related, I would really appreciate it being submitted to Poetry Spot. And then you can call up, and we can uh, discuss it's, uh, the news through poetry, which is a lot of fun to do every Sunday at 2 p.m. Eastern. Um, it's sort of the only Sunday morning news show that is based on poetry, and it's much better than Meet the Depressed. Um, now, and then we also... So we have three shows. The Critique of the Week is Fridays at... Uh, 2 p.m. Pacific, 5 p.m. Eastern, and, and we go over a, uh, a volunteer's poem, and we all sit around like a workshop and 
improve it and let the poet know um, what we think after reading it. So those are the three shows that we have. There's the Critique of the Week, there's Poetry Spot, and then there are these Rattlecasts every Tuesday night. And so I hope you enjoy this. I have a lot of fun. And once you get the setup, it's really easy. So um, I hope you can all join in as much as possible over Skype and, and participate and let's share our poems. Um, and I hope you have a great night. I will talk to you soon. I'll talk to you Friday, Sunday, or next Tuesday with um, next week's guest once again, Catherine Barrett. That's what. Have a great night. <laughs>